talking about early startup, there's a fair amount of faith that goes into, do I think this person has what it takes to make right. it happen? Yep. Right? More so than the technology in a lot of ways. It's, can this person pull it off? Can this and, person lead us through to a solution? So this person absolutely. may have identified a problem, but is it this person or this team who will lead us through to a solution? This podcast is brought to you by Dentons. We are the largest law firm in the world with offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries available to support you everywhere you do business. We're a law firm that embraces change and can help you grow, protect, operate, and finance your organization, which is why Dentons is organized to offer more than just legal insight. We're here to help you find business solutions in a seamless fashion across the globe. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today I'm joined by Connie Stacy, the founder and CEO of Growing Greener Innovations. Welcome Connie. Oh, thanks for having me Heather. It's so good that you're here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. To get us started, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I probably guess uh, you don't want me to start at elementary. Well, we'll skip to the juicy stuff. Junior high. Uh, I actually, junior high, <laughs> definitely not juicy from my perspective. All right. But, all right. Um, <laughs> okay. So I, uh, I came from an IT background and ended up uh, making the decision to start a battery manufacturing company, uh, which I founded in 2014, really kind of kicked off late 2015. And since then, we've uh, been able to patent our technology and uh, really start to to grow and, and get some scale happening and, and some global customers and so forth. So it's been a pretty exciting kind of run the last few years. That is a pretty exciting run. Tell me a little bit more about how you start in IT and end up in batteries. Are they connected, related? Are they random? So actually kind of related, okay. although the, the, the jump was partly uh, um, just an initiation. It happened that... Um, I was off on maternity leave with my twin boys at the time, and I passed by a diesel generator running and thought to myself, literally, if you wake these babies, I swear to God, <laughs> I am going postal, um, which kind of got me thinking about remote power and temporary power and things like that, uh, which then got me to think, well, why wouldn't we use battery in a circumstance like this? Um, and the tie to IT came that batteries are used in every server room in the world. Right. Uh, as an interrupted power supply. So the idea of using batteries um, to level load or to manage interruptions, things like that was not entirely novel. Um, it's not a, a direct, direct fit, but then again, computer science um, or computer engineering and electrical engineering are the same department. So there's a lot of similarity right. overall. Interesting. Um, but the real emphasis was uh, discovering a market niche that needed to be addressed. And did you did you always uh, have this little entrepreneurial bent to you, or did you did that did, did like babies in, ignite that in you, or did you like did you intend to have your own company and sort of be your own entrepreneur, or was that just an accidental byproduct of don't wake the babies? You know, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I I kind of always had a little bit of an inkling that I would like to be an entrepreneur, that I would like to own my own business. It's something I I kind of considered multiple times uh, throughout my life. But a lot of it really um, came with 
I didn't go down the road because I had comfort in what I was doing, right? Mm. I mean, you have the security of a full-time job. Of course. You don't necessarily mess with that. Uh, entrepreneurship is very risky. Uh, it involves not getting a lot of a lot of salary or any salary often for a long time. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't uh, very seriously consider it prior to this. Um, but I think one of the things that motivate, motivated me previously was, you know, I would work in other companies and I'd have great ideas, but I never really felt hurt. Um, and that was something that I kind of, you know, I wanted to be somewhere where, where I thought I could explore what I thought were great uh, ideas. And that was something that I felt was a bit overlooked at other places I was at. And, and that was definitely a big motivator for me. That's interesting. So it wasn't the fact that you were getting no sleep from um, babies and you're like, this is amazing. Let me sign up for more no sleep and no salary and lots of risk. That wasn't exactly the motivating force, but rather the desire to be in control of, of sort of your destiny and, and, and the platform of being able to articulate the things that, you know, were important and, and uh, interesting to you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the I guess the the burn the ships moment for me kind of came, um, there might've been wine involved one <laughs> night in chatting with a good friend of mine, but I, I was explaining to her how I had spent all of my years up till like, gosh, I was, when did this start? I was 40, I think, uh, right around 40 mm -hmm. when I finally kicked this off. And, um, and I thought, you know, I've spent all of these years up till this point volunteering to help for things like any kind of equality movement. So uh, opportunities for women, opportunities for children, opportunities for LGBT, um, right. persons of color, whatever it might be, things where I felt there was imbalance. And I thought, you know what, this, this technology that I have in mind that I, I've designed, you know, at this point, of course, it's all theory, but I had designed in my mind, really would address a lot of inequalities. Uh, particularly as it relates to things like energy poverty, which of course is very disproportional uh, around the world in terms of who it affects most. And right. I thought, you know what, maybe if you want to win the game, you have to make your own, win the game, or sorry, if you want to change the world, you may have to win the game and make your own damn rules. And right. that's what kind of left, made me leap at the time was just, I think that there's a great opportunities for this technology. I think the market wants it that it could make a lot of money and that I could use business as a way to influence positive social change. Mm, I love I it. I said that better than the start. The start where I stumbled, that that was a little less smooth. <laughs> I love it's it. Long I day. love it. And I think I think that, that that concept, you know, articulated maybe slightly differently and people would have a slightly different spin on it. But I think that that concept is really what motivates a lot of entrepreneurs to either start with a a passion project or a side project or a side hustle or who knows what you know who knows how they kind of get their their footing but but it's that platform again I keep sort of coming back to that word but it's that ability to make a change in a positive positive direction and to influence the change in a way that's meaningful um, for the entrepreneur that you don't otherwise access through a traditional nine to five or you know, whatever barrier there is in the way. And, and that's what I think is so igniting about the entrepreneurs that I work with is they have this passion, they have this drive to make whatever change it is they're, they're trying to, you know, trying to do. And they kind of chip away at it, little bits here, little bits there. And, and sometimes they do that, well, they've got a safe nine to five job. And then they, you know, they leap off the, the cliff um, because they really truly believe in that, uh, 
in that passion. So uh, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. I, I think it's interesting how it applies in so many different areas, so many different industries, and, and there's that, that real sort of theme to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit. You know, oh, sorry, go please go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, interestingly, since the time I started till now, the idea of a social venture or a social enterprise has yeah. widened so much. When I said I was doing this eight years ago, people were like, a social what now? <laughs> and the idea of, yeah, it was completely unheard of. And now social enterprise is becoming something that is widely understood and, and so much more common. So I'm not surprised by your comments either. Well and and a differentiator right like the concept of i have you know my business in what, whatever capacity that is can be a social enterprise is something that you know venture capitalists are attracted to they're looking for places to you know dump their funding to check the box of how does this how is it di different from another business and one of the ways is that you know that social enterprise or you know, different, different iterations of that. So yeah, you're right. That's becoming a bit more commonplace and that's good. That's what the world yeah. needs, right? I agree. Tell me a little bit more about the, the technology. Tell me about batteries. Tell me about power. <laughs> Tell me what it means. You know, we hear a lot about the grid and we hear a lot about what that means, but what does it mean? And you're, you know, in the industry, you're in that space. Tell me what that means and how, it affects your ability to, to make products in, in that space? Well, this is a, definitely a question uh, that could go on for many hours. So I'll try and put it into a couple of little buckets for you. Okay. Um, one of the things I like to kind of give people an idea with, um, or an overview with batteries is to say that we often, when we talk about batteries, talk about chemistry, um, right. you know, lithium iron phosphate versus, you know, a nickel magnesium cobalt or whatever it might be. Um, there is no perfect battery. So people, oh, the next battery, that's it. But actually batteries tend to, uh, different chemistries apply to different scenarios. And that becomes important in terms of what battery chemistry you're gonna use, and what technology is going to apply because a grid setting is very different from say a remote temporary work site or um, something that is uh, an uninterrupted power supply, but maybe is only running for a maximum of 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So the different uh, chemistries have different factors around, you know, their specific power and specific energy and how long they last and all of these different things. So often people have this idea, like there's one battery, there's mm -hmm. not one battery. I don't believe that that's true. I think that it's, um, there's lots of different chemistry that, that apply in different ways. In fact, actually, in terms of technology, one of the things that we did, um, and again, a tiny bit of clarification, when we talk about batteries, um, there's often a little bit of confusion between a battery cell, yeah. a battery, and a battery system. So cells are literally, um, especially if we talk about like lithium, are often like a let's say a 32650 cell looks like an oversized D battery. Okay, <laughs> um, okay so the, an individual cell is then combined um, and controlled through electronics to create a battery. So something like a 48 volt, 100 amp hour battery. And then battery systems would combine those batteries, multiple of those batteries, uh, with further electronics to do really big uh, applications. So that might be a building or a city or who knows what it could support the grid etc so we work right now primarily in building batteries and battery systems but we're actually okay. intending to also extend and start building cells as well oh. so a lot of our stuff right now in terms of technology what we really did was 
we look back at that original problem. How do you get rid of a diesel generator? Because diesel generator, by the way, is one of the worst polluters in the world. People right. really overlook these things and they're horrifically bad on the environment. And quite frankly, nobody actually likes working around them because they're extremely loud and highly pollutant and expensive to operate, et cetera. But you couldn't refill a battery like you can a gas can. So right. remote and temporary power was a real problem. Um, and for most people, it remains that way. So what we did is we developed a technology where we could effectively hot swap in a live setting, in fact, in really big settings, batteries in and out without technicians. So there's no technical person. Yeah, there's no electrician effectively. And this is something we're doing with the Department of Defense right now. So our system comes in, it's delivered in a 20 foot C cam. Um, soldiers then can go in and pull a battery off the rack while it's supporting the whole camp. So the whole camp is powered through it. Just wow. plug in, pull a battery off the rack, and then use it in the field as an auxiliary power supply. So maybe it's for surveillance equipment or power tools or whatever it might be. And then they put it back. So this is a really unique thing in the industry right now. Um, so that's one of our primary areas, but the technology actually goes quite a bit beyond that. In terms of grid, okay, so again, <laughs> big topic. Uh, but one of the things I would kind of put out there for consideration is a lot of times when we talk about grid, um, the challenges around the grid was that it was, it was designed for one-way flow of electricity. It was never designed as two-way. And it was never anticipated we would have the type of demand that mm -hmm. we have now, especially with electric vehicles, right? Right. So if you think of it almost like a pipe, the wires were designed to carry a certain amount of electricity and to carry it primarily in one direction. So now we have all of this demand coming in and people needing to deal with all of these new electric cars coming onto the grid, et cetera. But the grid infrastructure wasn't designed to support it. So one of the things you do with batteries or one of the um, applications which is most effective is actually to help um, shift load or load manage, mm -hmm. which basically says, because a lot of the times, again, if you think of the analogy of a pipe, a lot of the times the electricity grid is not maxed out, especially right. like the middle of the night. I mean, it's running at, you know, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's a third of its capacity. Sure. Well, at dinner time, it might be running at 100% and people are getting blackouts. But if you use battery storage on a local site, you effectively store the energy that's generated at 2 a.m. into the battery so that when the load is high, you're not pulling from the pipe. You're pulling from a local store, store. energy source. So that can be one of the big areas that it supports grid. So you're, so you're essentially storing it so that you can redeploy at, at a maximum peak usage so that you don't have to exceed your peak usage. You can just use what you've stored up. It's like storing up your snacks for when you get really <laughs> hungry later on. I don't need more food. I just need to store some. Yeah. <laughs> sure, squirrel it away. Yeah, actually, you know what? It's, um, it, it, that's a thought about an analogy. It's like spreading out your, your calories over the day instead of having them in big clumps. Uh, but that's uh, so actually, there's kind of two pieces there. One of it is more related to industrial energy usage. So your bigger industrial users versus your residential or your commercial. Okay. Now, we don't have this in Alberta at the moment, but in a lot of the country, they have what's called time of use, which means that you pay a different rate for your electricity at sure. dinner time 
thing you do in the middle of the night. So it's actually a good way for individuals or commercial um, groups to save money. Simply you put in a battery system, buy cheap electricity and store yep. it, yep. and then use it from the battery when it would otherwise be expensive. Now right. on the industrial side, they have what's called peak shaving, which is a similar kind of concept, but it's not timed to a particular time of day. It's a particular demand rate. So if mm -hmm. you are, and you normally charge per kilowatt. So yeah. if you're getting charged, uh, say your peak is 500 kilowatts, well, that's the, the rate you're charged at. But if you can instead, and you might only hit 500 kilowatts, um, say during startup first thing in the morning when they turn on all the equipment because things spike. But yeah. if instead during that spike period, you're able to pull from a localized energy source, a stored energy, well, then your peak might only be 300 kilowatts. Right, you'll never yeah. Exactly. So then you're again able to lower bill and of course lessen the load on the grid, which makes the infrastructure last longer. So it's kind of a win for everybody. Interesting. So why is that complicated for people to get their head around? <laughs> There's a lot. I got it. I just I just made an analogy to food. I got it right away. You got it right away. You're brilliant. You know what? I think in a lot of uh, cases, first off, there are a lot of other things that are at play. Sure. A lot that comes down to to money. I mean, people are controlling the energy and that energy has a great deal of value. And I think that creates a lot of political conflict. Oh. So for example, I'll leave names out of course, but one of our, in fact, two of our customers we're dealing with right now, um, they're both overseas. One's in, uh, uh, South, in uh, South Africa and one is in Wales. And in both cases, the local energy distributor, the electricity company has an embargo on embedded generation. Now, what that means is they can't put solar on their site. And the traditional approach with solar companies, you know, relatively speaking, of course, is that they generate on site, but push it onto the grid and then buy back as they need. Right, right, right. Because you have, if solar's on, you'd be effective at certain hours of the day. Right. Now, the problem is that requires the pipe to be big enough to manage that additional generation that's happening on site. Right. So now you've got uh, your distributor companies going, ouch, we can't do that unless we put in specialized equipment, you know, bigger pipe, uh, uh, or, you know, super transformers, et cetera, which can be very expensive. Right. And the other side to it, of course, is there's a lot of money involved and they don't necessarily want to lose big customers to renewables. So sometimes there is a less than noble cause behind it. Um, but that, again, is where battery can actually change that quite a bit. So one of the things we do is we are a true um, behind the meter solution. So we don't ever backfeed onto the grid. For oh. one, it's actually one of the things that's least efficient. Um, okay, soapbox moment. I yes. know you're a smart one, so you're gonna get this right away. When you generate electricity on site, so you're using solar, wind, it doesn't matter really sure. what your generation source is. You're creating DC current, direct current. Yep. Um, and then you have to put, you wanna put it onto the grid. Well, the grid is AC, so you have to flip it. So you lose eight to 10% of your energy flipping to AC. Oh. And you pump it out onto the grid, which if the grid is efficient, you're gonna lose say two to 4% on line loss, okay? Then you're gonna buy it back and lose two to 4% on line loss. <laughs> and then you're gonna plug in a computer or electronic device or an electric vehicle, which requires DC current. And then you flip it back and lose uh, 10%. Right. Right, that's- So there's this leakage. Huge. So you're easily losing upwards of 20 to 25% of the energy, just going back and forth between uh, AC and DC with the grid. 
Interesting. By contrast, what we do is we say, nah, generate DC, store DC, and then split the load on the site. So you right. store it on site, you don't ever go back onto the grid. We output to AC as needed, but we output to DC. So things like electric vehicles can go DC to DC and you avoid that, that loss. You avoid all that leakage. Entirely. Very efficient. Very efficient. I like efficient. I like yep. efficient. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because I feel like, so the pandemic, of course, has highlighted in, in a number of, of uh, different industries and in a number of different ways and you know degrees of severity, the pandemic has highlighted some supply chain and, and logistical issues. And I'm interested to know, um, so, so when we talk about efficiency, we are talking about the opposite of efficiency when we're talking about supply chain issues. But I'm interested to know what that did for your company and for your business in terms of were there challenges, were there opportunities? What, what was the effect for you? Oof. You know, um, I don't think it changed a ton for us because there was uh, already supply chain and logistic issues around batteries in general. Uh, batteries, of course, are considered a dangerous good. So let me tell you, shipping them is one of the most painful processes of all time. I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but what's interesting, and uh, I know, Heather, I've mentioned this to you before outside of this context, but one of the things that I think people have kind of forgotten is that there is a point at which economy of scale becomes inefficient. Right. Um, and it has to do with logistics and um, transportation of goods. So now one of the big trends in the battery industry, and this is very common with the bigs, if you will, um, is you know, we're going to build a 70 gigawatt hour factory. No, we're going to build an 80 gigawatt hour factory. And there's great economy of scale, of course, that's gained. But there's also some loss because you're now dragging resources from every corner of the planet right. to create a very specialized building. To centralize. It's not just building. any any building that can house the equipment that's going to be necessary. Right, of course. Um, and then you've got to ship it back to customers. So the environmental footprint is massive. Right. Um, but we actually have the approach that we would rather have 71 gigawatt hour plants and have them regional. The reality is most of the battery materials um, that are required are available mostly, you know, almost everywhere in the world. Certainly within a certain, um, you know, when you're talking about 70 regional sure. facilities, you can get something that's semi-close. Now you have the, the much smaller footprint in terms of moving the materials, um, and you don't deal with what is a massive headache in batteries, and that's shipping them. Shipping a battery is probably, no, it is not probably, it is the single hardest part of what we do. We can have materials go, and even though we have designated, well-certified, um, dangerous goods shippers, the person yeah. on the receiving end may not. So we oh. had shipped uh, some goods to Nigeria, oh gosh, April, and it arrived in a reasonable amount of time and then sat at a port unable to be processed for months because they didn't huh, know what Because they didn't it. have the technicians. Interesting. And they, yeah, and it's, it becomes a huge problem. So one of our approaches is we want to have facilities spread out such that we can serve customers by road or rail. Right. And this way we have much better ability to move the goods quicker with lower footprint yeah. um, and without all the logistical delays. Right. So that's and one does, of 
Does that then mean, so, so let's, you know, hypothetically say that you start, you know, you have a location, you have, you have a, a location in, in a particular spot and you can then ship by road or rail, as you say, does that then also build some capacity within those communities, you know, make some jobs, all of those things to train those people, you know, to, to not only do the shipping and, and, and the logistics once it's, it's made, but to, adapt or to move forward the adoption of that technology in that local area as opposed to having it centralized somewhere really far away and then having to incur the the cost time effort of the logistics yes yes and yes uh, i mean basically the, the idea is again this is part of our value as you know we're a social enterprise we want to create economic wealth where we also sell so we don't want to be stripping communities by <laughs> providing a product that costs them a pile of money um, right. And isn't also providing jobs. Now, of course, the, the product has value and save companies a lot of money. Sure. In fact, it's kind of shocking because a lot of people associate um, the ROI on renewables with, with solar, which you know often 11, 12 years. Our systems are typically between two and four years. Oh, um, wow. They pay themselves off much, much faster um, because of these electricity fluctuations and prices and things like that. It's much, much faster. Um, but the idea is, you know, Right now, for example, South America produces an enormous amount of the world's supply of lithium, but they don't, uh, they don't actually produce any cells at the moment. None. Wow. Um, yeah, I, that might have changed uh, during the pandemic. I had been uh, working with uh, the Inter-America's Development Bank uh, around this a little bit. And at the time, during our discussions just pre-COVID, they weren't producing any cells. And wow. yet they are buying massive amounts of batteries. Now, from my perspective, we should have a facility there, of course. creating jobs there, and then selling that product in that region. The demand is so high globally. Why would we make it all in Canada to ship everywhere else? Well, that 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 is exactly what I'm thinking. Like, um, why? Like, it, you know, exactly why? Why would you do that? And especially as as you say, there's probably globally there's probably some inequality between supply and demand and why wouldn't you even that out just from an efficiency perspective and economic wealth and all of those things right it, it seems like a no-brainer well and realistically the market demand is such that we could have 71 gigawatt hour plants all around the world and we would still not even come to close to being you know the biggest supplier in the world really um, it wouldn't even come close to to the demand that is out there because it's going through the roof I mean, we're barely scratching the surface on, on what battery demand is, because when I was talking about that need or that opportunity to use batteries to supplement uh, the grid and create greater yep. grid stability, that is so underutilized right now. So your choice right now is spend a lot of money upgrading the grid right. or put in batteries that can stabilize the grid and also provide the customer on site with additional services. Right, right. So I think that we're seems, underestimating. It seems it seems like I mean when we remove when we completely eliminate all of the political factors which are not insignificant it seems <laughs> like a pretty you know straightforward problem solution here we are but then of course real life uh, catches up with us and we have to add in some of the the political factors which makes this slightly more complicated than than the just problem and solution as presented. Well, yeah, and actually, you know, one of the positives of, of uh, COVID for us is, you know, it's funny because the timing, I just kind of laugh, just before COVID, uh, Global Edmonton here locally was doing mm. a series of videos promoting the region. 
And I was in one of the videos talking about how we needed to locally manufacture, that we weren't doing enough local manufacturing uh, and that the future of manufacturing was in fact where the grid was most stable and low cost, which is not places like India and China for the most part. Right. Um, And that would change the future of it. And of course, so I did this video and then, oh gosh, it was maybe two months later that COVID hit and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden logistics and supply chain went to heck. And everybody starts saying, you know, we should consider doing more manufacturing locally. I told you. Really? Really? (laughs) Like, where did you get that idea? I know, right? It's like, I wish more people were listening beforehand. We could have had a jump start. (laughs) But, you know, it is, it is interesting how, excuse me, it is interesting how the pandemic really highlighted things that might be really obvious or really apparent in your industry or really apparent in what you bumped up against every day now got this little spotlight shone on them through the through the lens of the pandemic and all of a sudden what was completely obvious to you know some industries like healthcare for example was now amplified and really exhibited Mm -hmm. in in a lot of other industries so you know i think that's one of the i don't know if that's a pro or a con but certainly one of the effects of the pandemic is that it it did shine light on some of the inequalities that were apparent in, in very localized industries and how it might actually have a bigger effect on, on others. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and I thought like in post-pandemic, you know, because of the highlighting of these issues, the fact that we are a North American made battery has been very valuable to of us. Course. Like I literally, again, I'll leave out names, but I was at a conference, which I was speaking about this topic of, of um, grid stability affecting where we manufacture in the future. And afterwards, uh, a company that is one of the top five um, uh, power distributors in the US literally chased me down the hallway saying, wait, you manufacture in North America? Really? And I was like, yeah. He's like, like, really, really? And I was like, really, really? (laughs) Not Um, mine. Then we want to be talking to you because they're dealing with so much logistics. Mm -hmm. They have money to bring in product and put on the grid to support what they're doing and they can't get the product and it really is about logistics in this case more than anything else so um yeah it certainly had some positive impacts for us so interesting um tell me what so so not necessarily limited you know to the grid and and to these uh logistics that we've that we've talked about although it might be i'm interested to know what you would say growing greeners top one two whatever you want to talk about, biggest challenges have been. So since you started <laughs> the business, you know, we hear as, as I work primarily with entrepreneurs and we hear all the time that, you know, fundraising is a challenge or getting traction with, with clients is a challenge or, you know, recently supply chain. What would you say, you know, when you had those two babies that you didn't want to have woken up and you were like, I just want to jump off this cliff and jump into entrepreneurship. What, what are the challenges that you didn't anticipate that have been the, the biggest source of, of, of angst for you as an entrepreneur? Well, it's definitely been a couple. Uh, I mean, we... <laughs> I like how there's no hesitation. You're like, how many times, how many do you want me to talk about? <laughs> uh, in particular, I think the ones that um, surprised me in terms of their significance yeah. was there really, really is a difference in terms of who we expect to be a manufacturer of batteries, for example, Hmm. women are not often in deep tech, not nearly as common as men. And I was met with a lot of skepticism, a lot of, and I mean, I literally had people say to me, oh yeah, but who really invented it? 
I have people, I literally have somebody come into my office and say, I was looking at your website and I thought I should stop by and explain to you girls how electricity works. Yeah, super helpful. Super, super helpful. helpful. Yeah. Good thing I, they thought to stop by and mansplain that to you. Yeah, exactly. Right. No, thankfully, that's the minority, not the majority. However, there is that unconscious bias that's there that says, well, you know, when you're talking about early startup, there's a fair amount of faith that goes into, do I think this person has what it takes to make right. it happen? Yep. Right. More so than the technology in a lot of ways. It's, can this person pull it off? Can this and person lead us through to a solution? So this person absolutely. may have identified a problem, but is it this person or this team who will lead us through to a solution? Yeah, absolutely. And that is an area where I think there was a lot of skepticism. And I've certainly had, and I had mentors I worked with um, from Silicon Valley and so forth. And a lot of them flat out said to me, quite frankly, Connie, if you were a man with this type of technology, they would be throwing money at you. By contrast, <laughs> that was not the case at all. Right. We've had almost no government funding, very, very little government funding, which when starting a battery company is definitely um, a challenge. A challenge uh, is definitely, I mean, one of the most expensive industries you could possibly decide to, to go into. I mean, the, all of the parts are expensive. The technology, the people that you need to hire, everything is very high cost. Uh, so it was a very expensive industry to go into, and we didn't get a lot of support in that regard. So, um, you know, the, the normal funding sources that a lot of people use were very unsuccessful for us. Um, and it was really frustrating. We had to fight a lot of uphill battles. I think mm -hmm. the big turning point for us was um, at one point, someone said, hey, there's this cool contest the U.S. Department of Defense puts on. You submit your technology, so you submit the reports and all of this stuff and show what you do. Um, and anybody from the world can do it. Well, Sure. Okay. Process, so we'll put it in. Well, we won an innovation award for, for oh, wow. and power. Uh, and so it was like, oh, hey, that's pretty cool. And what was really interesting was all of a sudden some of the skepticism that we faced, suddenly people start going, well, if the U.S. Department of Defense right. that has some kind of technology value, then there's got to be something there. And they were an important validator for right. the technology and its value. When we and for that, you. And for yeah, you and for as us. leading as leading the company, if somebody, if you know the Department of Defense is like, okay, well, of all these applications we got, we chose you. You know, that's obviously validation for the technology, validation for the concept, and validation for you as 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 a leader, which which just equals validation from a, from a fairly unusual source because many yeah. entrepreneurs either get angel funding, they get venture capital funding, they you know exercise all of these other options, but to win a contest with the US Department of National Defense is not the typical way that you solve that funding challenge. You know, a lot of people would uh, probably say I'm not exactly typical in a lot of sense. So that probably <laughs> well, par for the course. <laughs> par for the course. Yeah, it was it was definitely not the typical, but I think because it was being evaluated strictly on the technology and not on the leadership team really. I mean our names were there, sure. but it wasn't really a big component. You didn't it, it's not like a venture application where you're doing a whole pile of background and this is our team and why our team will be successful. It was really about the technology. Yeah. So that was a really big one. Um, and that also, of course, then spurred more people to look at us and it's of course spurred more technology and leadership boards, which really shifted things for us. So that first one was definitely the unconscious bias and yeah. hand in hand with that went the funding. 
So yeah. that was the other piece that we really struggled with. Like we had no money. I bootstrapped. I have still bootstrapped to this, this stage, which is really interesting because now all of a sudden, um, you know, we went from, I was actually on Dragon's Den, by the way, at one point and got Very off. Fun. I know, right? And unfortunately it didn't air because they had a problem with one of the dragons had to leave during, during uh, oh. part of the conversation. But as it happens, traveling <laughs> offered me half a million dollars, but he oh. wanted half my company. And I said, well, no, I don't think that's a good deal. So I turned it down when a lot of entrepreneurs uh, probably would have said yes. And I was definitely at a point where all of the advisors and stuff were telling me, you have to get funding, you have to get angels, you have to get venture capital and stuff. Well, I turned them down. Now, half a million dollars at that point would have cost me you know, half my company. Right now, half a million dollars would probably get you 1% or 2% of my right. company, right? So right. it's a totally different kind of, uh, game entirely because I was able to hold on, which kind of to me is one of the bigger issues that um, I don't think we address well in Canada. And I was actually listening, um, I had a course I was taking on governance and uh, one of the speakers this morning was talking about exactly this issue where we really right now, our system really pulls a lot of the long-term funding money uh, or gains out of Canada. You know, right. so right now, I mean, like we've had lots of people approach us now looking for, for equity, but of course, most of these funds are internationally based. They're not based in Canada. And even the ones who are typically sell eventually to an international one. So the long-term primary gains of the company would go somewhere else. Yeah. And yet, again, that doesn't suit what I personally want. Right. Um, and I, I won't lie. I totally had this fear that quite frankly, if I took on a big, um, venture or equity-based partner of some kind, that the first thing they were going to say is, okay, the gay woman who's CEO is out, right? Because <laughs> right? I'm not the face that people expect from a mar uh, marketing perspective, at least, you know, I'm not who somebody expects to see as the CEO of, a, of an emerging battery technology company. So right. that was definitely a bit of a fear for me as well, but I'm, I'm definitely a, we shouldn't give up equity as early as we do. <clears throat> In Canada, we should try and hold on to it longer. I've been successful there, but it was not easy and not entirely by choice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I run into that quite a bit. Uh, like this is a generalization. Of course, there's there's all kinds of nuance around this, but it's interesting because there is this tension or this, this discrepancy in many cases between like people, entrepreneurs will say like, I just need to get some Silicon Valley funding. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe but at what cost? So if you are a US-based company and you get some Silicon Valley funding, the cost is very different than if you're a Canadian-based company getting some Silicon Valley funding, because as you say, on exit, you know, assuming everything goes well, on exit, where is that going to go? Well, it's going to primarily go to the US. And that's not necessarily the reason why entrepreneurs want to start a company in Canada, because again, this is generalization, but perhaps the market is better suited, like healthcare is completely different in, in Canada versus the US. And so the market that you could serve would be very different in Canada versus the US. And so some people, but then they get to this point where they're just like, I just need money. I need to make payroll next week. Like, <laughs> I don't care what it costs me. I'm taking this money and it's a good deal and I want to do it. And it's, it's just, I just need one more corner. There's sunshine around the next corner always. And so I just need to get to that next corner. And so they take this deal, they take this US funding, and then they spend the rest of their time managing these very divergent expectations of the US people 
the US venture capitalists, private equity, whatever, who have this vision of what it is, I'm putting people on your board, I might kick you out. And that's just what we do. Versus the little Canadian entrepreneur who's like, I just, I just want to get to the next corner. Like I just, I, I, I have this vision for how I want to kind of move it forward. But in the moment, there's this pressure to just accept the deal because they, they just need to get to that next stage. And so I think it's, it's courageous that, that entrepreneurs have to think hard about, well, this might be easy in the moment, but is that really what I want? And sometimes that is the right answer. Like sometimes you're not going to get the funding in Canada. And of course the, the VC profile is different in Canada versus the US, but people come to me and they ask that all the time and always like, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but like, it might not be exactly what you kind of, you know, think it might be. And so I try to sort of talk through some of the pros and cons and there is no one answer fits all, but it's interesting that you, that you raise that because that's a, I feel like I'm the bearer of bad news sometimes when people ask me about this and I'm like, well, it might not be exactly what you think it is. And they're like, no, like, have you seen this TV show? Have you seen that? Like, of course you want to get the biggest deal, the biggest check and you do, but you have to know at what cost. Yeah. And, you know, and people always use the analogy of taking on any kind of an equity partner is like getting married. And I've been married a long time and I intend to be married to the same person the rest of my life. And so I treat it the same way when I think about an equity partner. If I'm going to get married with this equity partner, then I need to know that they get what this company is about. They get the value of it. And we're on the same path. To me, that's not something that can happen quickly. And that's a quick snap, snap kind of deal. This is something that has to be approached from the perspective of we need to know you're the right fit for us. It's not a one-sided thing. I mean, all of the early advice that I got was everybody pushed me. I had to find equity-based investors. In fact, I still often, and it's a real um, annoyance for me, quite frankly, but a lot of the programs, like whether federal or provincial, et cetera, that you might apply for, ask you and actually limit if you do not have an equity-based investor. Like, well, if you don't have an equity-based investor, it might not be good. And I'm like, actually, if I'm smart and I can get succeeded, I've succeeded thus far. Yes, Yes, exactly. It should almost be the reverse that, you know, to me, equity is the most expensive form of capital. I mean, it's a debt you can never pay off. So why would you take that in advance of other types of capital if you can? So for us, that was the path we wanted to go. um, And we did pull it off. But I do I 